Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Once again, thanks for joining me here at the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 24. Another exciting week of golf with Arya Jutanyagarn almost throwing away the U.S. Women's Open, but she didn't. Bryson DeChambeau did his best Tiger Woods circa 2008 U.S. Open playoff clinching putt impression after his winning putt at Memorial. And U.S. Open sectional qualifying wrapped up this Monday with amateurs and pros all over the country playing 36 holes in one day for the right to play the U.S. Open at Shinnecock later this month. We have many friends of the podcast that have been competing in the U.S. Open qualifying this year. So to those that made it through locals and even through sectionals, congrats on your incredible achievements. Speaking of the U.S. Open, we got a ton of great feedback from our last episode with our guest, Mike Weeks. He played in three U.S. Opens. He had some truly incredible stories to share about how he got into golf in the first place and then decided to turn pro. Remember, all of our episodes are available for download at any time. If you want to learn more about the podcast, listen to all the episodes, make sure you check out our website, thebackoftherange.com. This week's guest is Ryan Howison from Jupiter, Florida. When I did my research on Ryan's path into the game, I knew I had to get him on the podcast. He played collegiately at UNC Chapel Hill, but it wasn't golf. It was baseball. See, Ryan never played college golf, but he did compete in the NCAA College World Series. He was the starting third baseman for the Tar Heels. Pretty cool stuff. In this episode, Ryan talks about his journey on the mini tours, Q School, and playing on the Web.com Tour and winning, as well as his multiple stints on the PGA Tour. Before we get started, you know the drill. We are on Instagram, the Back of the Range podcast. We also post on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to email me anything at all, suggestions on guests, some questions, ben at thebackoftherange.com. Oh, and, and one final thing. This conversation with Ryan went so well, and for so long for that matter, that we decided to break this into two parts. So this is part one. I'll get the second part up as soon as possible. But for now, let's get things started. Let's welcome Ryan Howison to the back of the range. Ryan, thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me, Ben. So we... Uh, you know, we've spoken a lot about your history playing on not only the PGA Tour, but also the Nike Tour, which is obviously now the web.com. But through our through my research of, of your upbringing in the game of golf, I quickly realized that it's definitely not the norm. A lot of the people that we've spoken to here on the podcast have junior golf and, and high school golf and college golf backgrounds. Um, where did you grow up and, and when did you first start playing golf? Yeah, and uh, I, it's definitely a little different journey than the typical professional golfer, and not necessarily one I would overly recommend, but <laughs> it worked for me. I grew up in Ohio. In Ohio, the, the main sports at the time when I was growing up were football, baseball, and basketball. Those are the three sports that I played. I would play golf on a rare occasion. My grandfather, who was a member of Muirfield Country Club in Columbus, Ohio, he loved the game. My dad and mom would play once or twice a year. So it's not that I never played the game of golf. It just wasn't an emphasis. But certainly the other three sports were. When I moved to South Florida 
as I was entering high school, I cut that down. I cut out basketball because, quite frankly, I just wasn't tall enough, fast enough, or could jump high enough. So I, I cut it down to football and baseball. Uh, baseball was always my first love. And because I could throw in baseball, I was a quarterback uh, for my high school team from um, my sophomore year through my senior year as the starting quarterback. And not that we threw the ball a ton, but I really loved football also, so much so that I contemplated perhaps playing in college only to um, thankfully realize I was I would have gotten beat up pretty pretty badly, you know, a yeah. 5'10", 165-pounder going to college um, linebackers would have had their field day on me. But I was a good baseball player, so I had the opportunity to go to the University of North Carolina. I had a great time. Um, my senior year in college, we played in the College World Series. I was the starting third baseman. And those experiences and times with teammates Things like that are, are times that I would never give up. So often later in, in my golf career, people would ask me, do you wish that you had played golf growing up? Because coming from baseball and trying to enter golf, I was certainly behind the curve. Sure. And, and I tell people, I said, not a chance. I loved my experience playing baseball. Um, the bus rides with the guys, the plane rides, the locker room. You know, when you've got 25 guys or so, everyone had great personalities. It was sort of like being in a fraternity. Um, and we just all had a common goal. The other great thing about baseball was you could go 0 for 4, but the team wins and you had a great time on the bus ride home. There's not many times that I would go the equivalent of 0 for 4 golf, maybe shooting, you know, 80. Sure. And feel like I'm going to have a good time driving home because it's such an individual game. So I really love that experience. I, you know, the opportunity to play in front of fans and, and have a great time and, and play the sport that I really loved was something I'd never give up. That being said, I also realized that I was a average player in college and to ever play professional, you had to be extraordinary in college. I saw that I played against future major leaguers and I saw the the level of difference between their ability and my ability. But that being said, I, I had a great time. Sure. Then when I got done with baseball, or actually the story is my junior year of college, I was doing sliding drill. And unfortunately I did a head first slide, tore my rotator cuff, and had to have surgery. So I went to Alabama, I had Dr. Andrews operate on me. And then I tried to come back. That was over Christmas break, my junior year. I tried to come back and play baseball, which is in the springtime. And I wasn't fully healed, so I ended up tearing it again. So right at the end of my junior year, I had my second shoulder surgery. So within four months, I had two shoulder surgeries. And I wasn't allowed to throw a baseball that entire summer. So they said that I could do whatever it was that didn't hurt as long as it wasn't overhead motion. And I found that if I went out and swung a golf club, I had no pain. So instead of playing 30 games throughout the summer playing baseball, I just spent all my time on the golf course and went from shooting sort of mid-80s on a municipal golf course to shooting par a couple times by the end of the summer. 
and being that you know naive 20 21 year old kid i thought you know what if i can take that many strokes off my game in three months i can win the u.s open in six this game's not that hard it sounds logical to me i mean it, it does i mean you know, i've i've it, only had one cocktail but i'm listening to what you're saying and that makes perfect sense you know it's math it's just it's just it's a numbers game so i get it all right, so you're basically using golf as kind of like a rehab activity because you can't do an over the you know an overhand uh, motion with your arm. So obviously, golf is an underhand motion. So you're playing golf. You're drastically shaving strokes off your game. You're dropping from like a, a twelve handicap to a scratch relatively quickly. Did you still have aspirations of, of baseball a little bit just to continue out your college career or were you already thinking at that point hey i might have something here maybe i need to look at golf no i well i went back after that summer and and played my senior year and that's the year we played in the college world series so obviously i still had aspirations for baseball but on the same token i realized if there was any inkling of any level of professional baseball prior to the first surgery it was gone by the second surgery. So I knew I was going back simply to enjoy my senior year, enjoy my teammates, but my future in baseball was going to be over. Okay. But I did at that point reach out to the college golf coach because golf was also played in the fall and just inquired, you know, hey, could I come out for the team and try? Now, looking back, I think how foolish that is as somebody who literally had not hardly had played any tournaments and just because they shot par a couple times around a municipal golf course over the summer that they could fathom playing division one golf. But, you know, you're pretty bold when you're younger. So of course. I inquired, of course, he said, probably not a great idea. And, but I had made up my mind that because golf was not going to be, or I'm sorry, because baseball was not going to be a future. My grandfather, who was a successful businessman and, and loved golf, had pulled me aside and said, you know what, if you want to give golf a try when you graduate, I think you should do it. He was big at avoiding the what ifs of life. And he said, you don't want to get to be 40 years old and think, what if I'd have given golf a try? He said, if you give golf a try for a couple of years and now you're 24 instead of 22, it's not going to change your business career at all. He said, but you can't do it the other way. Sure. You, can't, you can't go into business and then at 40 decide to be a professional golfer. He said, so I'll back you for a couple of years. You'll see where it takes you. And then you'll make some determinations. Part of that is, you know, he's supporting his grandson. Part of it is he loved the game and, you know, he wanted somebody to root for and things like that. So that's what I did. I literally was on the driving range. Uh, we flew back from Omaha, Nebraska, the College World Series school. I had graduated. I got on the driving range. My uncle happened to be working um, with David Ledbetter on his game, and he connected me with Led, and I started working on my game. And I still have old VHS tapes of me starting out, and I look at those now and think, oh, my gosh, what was I thinking? <laughs> I mean, the swing was so bad. Uh, and, but, you know, it's one of those things where you just, sometimes it's ignorance is bliss. Sure. And I just had a goal in my mind. I was going to figure out how to do it. And I think that's 
you know, in everything that I've done where I've been successful, I think that's been the mantra is it may not be the best, but I'll figure out how to get it done. And golf is a, is a great sport like that. In baseball, somebody else evaluates your talent. So you could go four for four, but somebody may say, you know what? I don't think his bat speeds fast enough. I don't think he can make it to the next level. You don't really control your own destiny. Um, in golf, you do because you could you can shank it around the golf course and post a 69 and nobody's going to say, you know what? You don't get to win that tournament because we don't think you have the, the ability to go to the next level. You won because you shot the lowest score. Sure. It's plain and simple. So I've always been very good at figuring out at solving problems. And the problem you have in golf is you're standing on a tee and 450 yards away is a little hole and you have to get the ball in that hole as fast as possible. And how do you do that? And I've always just taken that as a problem solving and I'm going to find a way to get it done. And, you know, luckily I was stubborn enough to stay with it long enough to figure it out. You know, the other thing I'm thinking about right now is you never had the AJGA junior circuit to play in. You didn't play collegiately. You didn't have the USAM and the um, you know, the high level amateur competition. And yeah, maybe that's a weakness that you, you had to fight through when you're going up the pro ranks, but also you never had to watch what other amateurs were doing and say, wow, that guy hits at 300 on a string and doesn't move. And man, that guy chips and putts great. You didn't have that exposure. So you basically went into this on a clean slate and didn't have to compare yourself because you had no comparison. That's a hundred percent correct. The other component of that was I would look at people and they, you know, you'd find out they were all American or something like that. And I would think one, I don't care. And two, (laughs) you didn't play in the college world series. So I'm a better athlete than you are. So I don't really, you know, you can take your all American stuff, which it should be very well respected. But at the time I was like, I, I honestly don't care. Right. So, Let's tee it up. Let's find out who wins. And if you and if you beat me, it's I'm just starting out. It's only a matter of time before I catch up. Okay, so and cl- that was my attitude. Yeah. So and and clearly, just by listening to you, confidence isn't really one of your problems. You have a little bit of that. So so you, I can just imagine in your early twenties, you're just like me against the world. I'm just going to go chase this down and do it. Yeah, I, I've always had confidence, and and you know to. I, I, one of the things that my, you know, my parents and my grandparents always emphasized was, you know, there's, there's a a clear line between being cocky and being confident. Confident is a, is what you think inside and cocky is what you say outside. So inside I'm thinking all these things. I would never say them out, out loud. Right. Um, I would never treat anyone the way that, you know, in, in a, in a way that I, felt like, you know, I'm going to beat you or anything like that. It was just my inner drive that kept telling myself, you know, I don't, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what, how you're shooting. Just give me time. Yeah. And that would also be my fuel to, to work harder. And as I started playing against better and better players, I realized you, I've got a long way to go. So, you know, there's certainly a lot of humbling components, but, you know, I also had a, a work ethic that I'd stay on the driving range video in my swing for 
eight to 10 hours a day, seemingly every day, trying to get better. Then there's other components that I took from baseball. The, the primary one, and I'll never forget this, and it, it, you know, to this day, I still remember this. We're playing a game early in the spring up in North Carolina, and it's kind of drizzling. It's probably 45 degrees out. Kind of day where nobody wants to be outside. And we've got to play play a game. And our coach came in and he said, two months from now, nobody's going to care what the weather was. They're going to look and it's going to find out either you won or you lost. So you can either go out there and say, oh, we lost, but it was cold and then it was rainy and we didn't have our best stuff because of that. He said, but the win-loss there's no there's no reason there's no room for excuses you know you go out and you you get it done or you just don't go play and so that was you know another thing that i always kept in mind is there's no excuse you know i can't use the excuse well i didn't play college golf i didn't play high school golf i didn't really play junior golf you know so of course i'm not going to be as good as they are well that was that's just a, a cop out in my opinion, yeah. it's, there's truth to it, but if you believe in it, then I, if I believed in, it, I felt like I was going to be in trouble. Well, and the other thing that that prepared you for, I would imagine is that, you know, obviously you can't play baseball in terribly inclement weather. I mean, there's a certain point where they got to call it because it's, you know, you know, it's a different sport than golf, but golf, you can play in any sort of weather. So I can't imagine how much that helped you during tournaments and qualifiers and you name it when it's blowing hard or it's rainy or it's cold, you've already been through the worst of it. So I can't only imagine that that must've helped you tremendously. I'm sure it did, but I, you know, truth be known, I'd much rather play in 80 degree and sunny and all that stuff. So of course. I try, you know, we all go through that time where we look outside. It's like, Oh my God, I really want to go out and play in this. And a tournament's a different story. I mean, you have to tee it up. Yeah. But the tough part is when you're, on the road and it's a Tuesday and you need to go play a practice round and you look outside and you're thinking, Oh, all I want to do is stay in bed today, but you've got to get up and go do your work because that's your job. Sure. So you, you play in the college world series in 1989. You're a walk on that makes it as a starting third baseman. So that's the, the pinnacle of college baseball. And then you reach the pinnacle of professional golf. You earned your PGA tour card through Q school in 1994. That's five years in between there. Can you tell me what was the low point in those five years? When did, was there ever a point in those five years where you're just like, ah, I don't know if this is going to work? I think there were some times when I certainly had that attitude. I would, I'd be working on my golf swing, and you know, you're not playing well, and you're missing cuts, and you're playing the mini tours where there's no money anyways. You know, but yet entry fees are still pretty high and you still have travel expenses. But those were some of the most enjoyable times also because I was traveling with a bunch of guys who were in the same situation. So you're sharing hotel rooms, you're traveling together, you know, you're all in your young, your early twenties. So you're having a great time in life in general. So there certainly were some very low times with golf, but when there were, I had, buddies of mine who were going through it with me and some had more success than others. And, and at different times you can try to celebrate, you know, in their success. 
And then, and then there'd be the times when you're working on your golf swing and for the life of you, you just can't figure it out. And you're thinking, am I doing the right thing? Am I just totally wasting time here? Should I, you know, should I do something else? Am I ever going to make it? But, you know, for me, because I started at such a, a low ability level, I mean, I thought I was decent, only to look back and say I was really bad and you know, the grand scheme of professional golf, that I had a lot of upside room. Anybody who was at my ability and, and was practicing every day was going to get, had to get better. Sure. So because I kept seeing myself getting better, I kept telling myself, I will stop when I feel like my game is not getting any better. And if I've never made it to any of the tours, then that's fine. But I'm just going, because I don't want to waste my money. I don't want to waste anyone else's money and I don't want to waste time. But luckily I could keep seeing improvement. It wasn't on a daily basis, but over a period of time, I could keep seeing some improvement. And the real turn came in 1994 where I went down to a little uh, country called Trinidad and Tobago and they had their national open. And I went down there. I played great. I ended up winning the National Open, and I won $12,000. And at that time, that was more money than I could. I mean, I could pay off my credit card. At that point, my grandfather had said, hey, you know, I think you can do it on your own. You're making a little bit of money. You know, you've got some credit cards. But I had credit card debt. And the fact that I could pay off my credit cards and have a little bit extra money and it also got me into this tournament that's no longer in existence, but it was called the Gene Sarazen World Open, where anybody who had won a national open throughout the world was invited. So you had the Brit, you know, you had the the U.S. Open winner, the Canadian Open winner, you had the Trinidad and Tobago Open winner. You know, think of the smallest country in the world that winner sure. was invited, and it was outside of Atlanta at the end of the year. And I was able to go and play in it. You got a two-year exemption to it. And so in 1994, right before second stage of Q School, I played in that tournament. So I'd gotten through first stage. And back then, first stage wasn't as difficult as it is today. I mean, <laughs> you have to play really hard just to get through first stage nowadays. Yeah. But back then, as long as you kind of stayed upright and you know didn't <laughs> hit every ball out of bounds, okay. But... And I played in that Sarazen World Open, and I'm watching all these incredibly great players, and I am struggling all week because now I'm comparing myself with the best of the best and realizing how far behind I was of them. And I was so worn out from playing that tournament that I went to the second stage of Q School the next week, and I'm I was a historical long practicer. I will wear myself out. You know, I'll have a morning tea time and be the last one to leave the range. I'll stay on the range, you know, five, six, seven hours working on my swing. I was so tired from the World Open, having done that, that I would go out, hit a few balls, go tee it up. As soon as I got done, put the clubs in the car and go back to the hotel. And I didn't, I didn't hit one extra ball that whole week that I didn't, you know, need to just to warm up. And I got through second stage for the first time. And then I thought back then, as long as you got through second stage, you had you had some type of yeah, something you know, better status than you do nowadays for, for getting to finals. But at that point, I said, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe I've just been playing the Hooters tour, and now all of a sudden 
I'm going to have some type of status on the, on the Nike tour. And that was just a huge encouragement to me. And then I happened to, you know, went to, to finals and same type of thing. I mean, I, I didn't realize the magnitude of the event. I just was going out to play golf. And it, again, it was a problem solved. There's six rounds. I've got to try to figure out how to get through these six rounds. And I realized that there was a lot of people there that were really, really nervous <laughs> and people that were a lot better players than I were or than I was and had a lot better resumes than I did. I was watching them and playing practice rounds with them. And even the first couple of rounds teed up with a, a couple of them and watched how they played and how nervous. And I said, wait a second, this is a, this is now a level playing field because they're a lot better than I am, but they feel like there's more at stake because they should make it. I shouldn't even be here. <laughs> so I went out and played, I can't say carefree, but I played without a lot of worry. I probably, you know, the sixth round, um, I probably only hit, you know, seven or eight greens, but that was sort of my game. I was going to figure out, I, I didn't care. I was going to miss a green. I was going to chip it up. I was going to put it in hit par, move on. And the greens I did hit, I was probably, I was going to try to make birdie. And that was my game. And I ended up coming to the last hole of a course called Greenleaf. Uh, was oh, the yeah. ninth hole. I know Greenleaf. I got a, and, I got a much more depressing story about Greenleaf, but yours sounds better <laughs> than mine, but you go ahead about Greenleaf. So the last hole was a par four. Back in the day, you're using wooden drivers. So I ended up hitting a drive out there and I got four iron into a, a pin that I had watched at the turn guys coming in, hitting, trying to hit that green because you had to walk around that green to, um, when you were making the turn and the pin was right over top of a bunker. It was on a down slope and there's just no way. To, I, never, I barely saw anybody hold the green. So I'm coming in with a four iron because I you know, didn't really hit it that well off the tee. And somehow I hit this four iron, hits on the upslope of the bunker, deadens it. It trickles down to six feet. Oh. And at that point I knew I had to make it. And I'd been missing tons of putts coming in. My dad was caddying for me. And I told him, I said, you know what? I keep blocking every putt because I'm at that point, I knew I was close and I want to make it. I kept coming up, up and out of putts. I said, I'm going to watch the ground after I putt and listen for it to go in to ensure that I stay down. And he says, you know, go ahead. And I did it. And I probably only kept my head down for like a nanosecond after I hit the ball. And sure enough, it went in to get my card on the number. So now I'm now I'm really a guy who's in a place where he shouldn't be because now I'm on the PGA Tour, and I'm thinking, I I don't even know what I've just done. I just know for the next five days, I woke up with a smile on my face, and then had to remind myself of why I was smiling. Oh gosh, what a great story! Who was more nervous over that putt, you or your dad? Oh, my dad was he was a mess, probably. Come to find out later, you know, he was he was extremely nervous. Oh gosh. I, I can't even fa- I mean it's one thing when your dad goes and caddies for you and it's a it's a one time thing or a one you know, a a one off tournament, but gosh, six rounds just for for your card, for your job. Yeah, I, I bet it took him a little bit longer to recover from that than it did for you. So so you you get in you're on now you're a a card carrying member of the PGA Tour. This is 1995. Um, 
gosh, the things I remember about 95 was uh, Pavin winning the, the U.S. Open. Uh, yeah, this Shinnecock. was Yeah, Shinnecock. And let's see, this was the year before the uh, Norman and Faldo Masters. So this is 95. Uh, that was Crenshaw winning the Masters that year. So just to kind of give our listeners an idea of kind of the the scene, this is still a couple of years before Tiger breaks onto the scene. He won the USAM that year. I mean, what what was the first tournament that you played? What was your PGA Tour debut? Probably the top story that I have of my entire time on the PGA Tour. The first tournament that I had the ability to get into, I, I was not. So for those who don't know, when you get your PGA Tour card through Q School, you're, at, you're not exempt. So you get in tournaments when there's space available, meaning all the other tournament winners and people that have finished higher up on the money list the year prior, they all have higher priority. So you get in based on availability and you, you're ranked. So I was, because I made the card right on the number, I had a very low ranking. And so I wasn't getting into many tournaments. So I went to Hawaii, didn't get in. Now everybody gets into Hawaii. But back then, I didn't get into Hawaii, tried to Monday qualify, which is not a bad place to go no, for a week. That's, that's um, not a bad, not a bad. Whether you're playing or you're not playing. And then I was an alternate for the AT&T out of Pebble Beach. So I went out there, and my best friend, who's still my best friend to this day, he and I went out there, and we were hoping that we were going to get in. So I was third ultimate. The tour told me I had a pretty good chance. And, and who's your? I'm sorry. And who's your best friend? I'm sorry. It's a guy named Brad Ball. Oh, okay, yeah. Brad and I had out there. They had had so much rain that week that nobody was allowed to play practice round. So as a result, a couple guys pulled out. Well, on tour, if Tea times have already come out and somebody withdraws. The alternate then goes in the spot where that tea time was. So typically the tour tries to pair up sort of players that have the same pedigree. So tournament winners play with tournament winners um, and two school guys play with two school guys. So you weren't going to get paired you know, nowadays, Q school guy is not going to get paired with Tiger Woods the first round. Right. You know, so I happened to get paired because somebody pulled out. I was paired with Peter Jacobson, who always played with Jack Lemon out there, uh-huh. who was kind of the icon. And I, and my amateur partner is Jack Lemon's son, who was, who was also an actor. And because Jack was such an icon, he had all the, he had the TV tea times. So right in front of us was, Nicholas, who at that time I hadn't met, and some other people. The pairing behind us was Don Johnson, Vince Gill with Corey Pavin and the late Payne Stewart. And right behind them was Arnold Palmer. So I'm sandwiched in this incredible <laughs> tea time grouping. Oh, mind you, I've never hit one shot on the PGA Tour yet, and I'm not quite certain how I even got on the tour at this point. So the rules official comes up to me and says, you know, you got a pretty good pairing, and he tells me, and so I end up finding Peter Jacobs and Jake out on the golf course, and everyone's just kind of walking it. And I tell him the predicament. He said, no problem. You know, you'll be fine. So I teed up with him for three days, and he goes on to win the golf tournament. 
So I'm playing with Jake the first three days, and I'm watching some of the best golf I have ever seen. And thank God he won, because if he'd have finished like 30th playing the way he did, I probably would have just hung up my clubs right then and there and thought, you know, there's no way I can beat any of these guys. Sure. He was hitting the ball incredibly flush and making putts. And, and Jack Lemon was fabulous. He took us to dinner at the, Brad and I had a dinner at the tap room one night. Probably the, the most enjoyable is on Saturday, we played Pebble Beach and we had the TV times. And the cameras are following. They didn't show one of my shots, and nor should they have. But being in that environment was a lot of fun. Then afterwards, there was a, a player's dining at Pebble Beach. So we went in there with Jake and with um, Jack Lemon and sat at a table. with. And my parents came out, and Brad's parents were out there. And we sat with Don Johnson and Ben Skill. And at that time, Don was dating Melanie Griffith. Yep. And uh, Clint Eastwood was dining with us. And the table next to us was you know, Barbara Bush, who just passed away, and um, President George Bush, and Dan Quayle, the vice president. At some point, we all sang him happy birthday, and Craig Stadler was there. And Brad and I are kind of looking at each other, thinking, you know, sort of what part, of, you know, which part of the equation here doesn't fit in with the rest of it. And it's the two of us. Uh-huh. <laughs> so even at one point, I was telling my wife last night, we, we were watching, you know, that Barbara had passed. And I said, you know, I actually ran into the back of her at one time. And the story was I went outside to make a phone call. And I'm on the phone. I'm looking sideways as we're walking back into this lunch tent. And all of a sudden, I look up and I just see a, a sea of white in my eyes while well, I ran into the back of her hair and I had, I didn't know who it was. So I reached out and I said, I'm so sorry. Only to have Barbara sugar and say, Oh, that's okay. Blah, blah. And I'm thinking to myself, Oh my gosh, this is the first lady. Uh-huh. So, or the form, former first lady. So it's, that was Brad and I still, I mean, that's been 1995. So what's that? 23 years ago. And we still talk about that story. It was oh, such a, a great week. God. Well, there's only about 37 directions I want to go with this, but um, wow. So you're, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just trying to digest the entire, the, the enormity of just that story. Um, so yeah, Lemon was basically the, the mayor out there. I know it was him and, and Jacobson and, and and actually, yeah, now that you mentioned 95, so he won that and actually got it. That was pretty big on getting him onto the Ryder Cup team in 95. Um, behind the scenes, I mean, we see everything about, the AT&T, you know, with Bill Murray and, and all the celebrities, I mean, with all the tournaments that you played in, was that just the most over the top crazy with all of the attention and all of just the moving parts? Did that tournament just stand out above all the rest? It, it did, it, it, but in a, in a good way. Yeah. There was so much fun. The tea gifts that they gave you, I mean, I still have this enormous Waterford crystal, you know, AT&T Pebble Beach engraved, uh, punch bowl was one of the gifts one year. Another year was these incredible water for crystal wine glasses. They were, they were one of the tournaments that gave you some really nice, some really nice gifts. So, but outside of that, there was a different atmosphere because of the entertainers that were there and people, people came out not to see golf, but to see the celebrities. Yeah. My mom who was following us, 
with Phyllis's story, we were at Pebble Beach one day and people came up and they're trying to figure out, you know, who's coming, who's playing this hole and who's coming up the next hole. And they're standing in there with a tee sheet and we, we're passing them. And my mom overhears this girl and this guy say, you know, who's this? And they said, well, that's Jack Lemon and Peter Jacobson. And they said, well, who's coming up next? And they said, oh, it's Don Johnson and Vince Gill. And they also said, oh, cool. Who are they playing with? And they said, oh, uh, Corey Pavin and Payne Stewart. And they go, who are they? Oh God. And you're thinking, all right, at that time there were the, you know, the best golfers in the world. Yeah. They've been around forever. And these people had no idea who they were. They weren't there to watch the golfers. No. They were there to see the celebrities. So it really was just, uh, uh, an amazing event. Obviously the venue, the vistas, everything were incredible. So I would say that is uh, was was my favorite event to play in. So you play in 1995 in the PGA Tour. You get into the tournaments you can get into. Um, how did that year end? So 95, I was unprepared for the PGA Tour. I just did not have the golfing skills required to play the PGA Tour. I could get the ball out there. I could get up and down, but you start putting me in long rough and long golf courses. You know, it's tough to get up and down, you know, from 60 yards versus because I've hit it in the rough and now I can't advance it far enough to get up near the green versus playing a golf course that has much lighter rough and you can advance it up towards the green and then figure out how to get up and down from there. So I would, I did, I had a very, very poor year and I think I only made four or five cuts all year out of, I think I got into 19 events. So um, I do remember getting in, you know, making my first check and at San Diego, another tournament that Jacobson happened to win, by the way, I think he, he actually won back to back weeks that AT&T and, and San Diego, but it was uh, definitely a learning experience. The, the part that I regret the most is watching the other guys too much and then trying to change my game to be more like theirs. So at that time, Greg Norman was probably the number one player in the world. So I'm watching him hit balls on the range. And a matter of fact, I actually played a practice round with him in Georgia one time and I could just, you know, you know, when you're outclassed and you're outclassed in literally every component of the game. So he could hit it straighter, further, higher, Putt better, um, everything. Think better, more confidence, more experience. And I try to emulate, not, not necessarily Greg, but other players as well, sure. saying I have to hit the ball better, and I have to do this, and I have to do that. When in fact, it was true, but I abandoned what had gotten me there, which was my short game. So then when I did start hitting it a little bit better, I'd miss a green and not get up and down where I would have before. So if I could do it all over again, I would have watched the other players to give me motivation to get better, but I would have made sure that I, what got me there was the short game. I would have made sure I continued to practice that and keep that sharp while I worked on the other parts of the game instead of just working on my deficiencies. So you, you go back to, we'll just call it the, just for, for consistency purposes, you go back to the web. You you played there in ninety six to ninety nine. You you picked up three wins. You had two in Lakeland, one at the Ozarks Open. 
and then you get back uh, in in two thousand in the year two thousand. You get back to uh, to the PGA Tour. Before we talk about your second stint on the PGA Tour in two thousand, um, what was what was one of the big differences that you saw? I'm sure there were a lot, but what was one of the big differences that immediately hit you when you jumped down from PGA to the web? Well, and there's there's the obvious differences, and you were playing for a whole lot less money. Sure, yeah. I, I guess I was I guess I was kind of referring to just the not just the the money, but like is is the level of competition different? Did you see something that really jumped out at you when you went to that tour, or uh, was it guys that were just as good enough to be on the PGA tour that uh, were working their way back? What I think I noticed the most the top thirty. 30 to 40 players in the world were just so much better than everybody else. The Ernie L's and the, the Normans and the Faldos and, and people like that. They're just heads and shoulders above everybody else. But then when you got down further than that, there was times when guys would play phenomenal, but then there would also be times when they would play very mediocre. And on the web.com tour, the guys who would play great were never as great as the top 30 players in the world that you had seen, but they were, they were extremely talented. But then a lot of the other ones, and I would probably throw myself in many years into this category, were still trying to find their way, still working on their game, trying to get to the next level. Versus the PGA Tour, you're at the ultimate level. So now it's time to perform. On the on the web.com, you're sort of still in that trial mode. You know, if I tweak my swing here, can I get up to the PGA Tour? If I work on this or if I work out more, if I change my diet, can I get to the PGA Tour? So there still was, they were working towards getting better versus the PGA Tour was more working about getting it done. Right. So I kind of, I noticed that. So when I went back to the, the tours, I focused more on getting it done. So I was... On the PGA Tour, I was trying to get a lot better. But when I went back to the web, I would try to get better. But when it was game time, I said, "Whatever I have, I'm gonna, I've got to play with. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop trying to work on my swing while I'm playing. Versus, I need to pay bills and I need to try to get back out. Because once you've had a taste of it, yeah. you certainly want to get back because you're treated like royalty." You have no reason to be treated that way. They definitely treat you far better. They treated me far better than I deserve to be treated. And there you have it. Another great episode here at the back of the range. Remember, this is part one of the Ryan Howison episode. Part two is coming up in a few days. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, the back of the range podcast. We're always posting on Facebook and Twitter. And again, if you have any questions, Ben at the back of the range.com, shoot me an email. We'll see you next time for part two of Ryan Howison's episode here at the back of the range.